This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I sent you a, a TV recommendation and I'm keen to know if you've followed up on it yet. Couples Therapy. Yeah, we watched one of it. You didn't like episode. it. It wasn't so much we didn't like it. I just, uh, no, I mean, actually, Justine really liked it and I liked it. It's just, it's quite hard watching. It was on Saturday night and we were watching. I'm not sure it's Saturday night entertainment. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's not 3-2-1, is it? No, it is documentary, isn't it? Yes, it's it's exactly what you'd think it is. It's a therapy session and it's four or five couples told across a series. It's American. And uh, I just thought you'd enjoy sort of psychoanalyzing those couples yourself and drawing your own conclusions. Well, if you are a couple... yes. And you watch it. I think it's sort of, you obviously sort of, you know what I mean? But isn't it a sort of Rosash test as well? Because it's sort of like what you read into it says something about yourself. Yes. As a couple. Yes, but just the emotional intelligence of you making that comment makes me think you're exactly the person who should be enjoying watching this kind of thing. I think that's a compliment. Somewhere in there. I, I honestly do want you to do this, what should I watch next? podcast i'm going to keep this is like a this is going to be a big campaign of mine it's either a bespoke service that you offer to people commercially or it's a sort of general podcast well i have to say i like the idea of it as a bespoke service because yeah. then it would be a bit like getting to be a therapist, but fully unqualified. I could get to ask people lots of questions about themselves and then at the end of the session give them five tv shows to go away and watch it would be honestly i think i'm onto something I mean, it's quite niche, isn't it? TV recommendation therapy session. Maybe it's just me, but don't you spend a lot of time Saturday night? Justine and I spend a lot of time. And also, it's not like going to a film where you're committed. You basically start watching something, you don't quite like it. You just, too much about politics, too much about the law, too gory, too scary, too close to the bone in some way. <laughs> I stopped watching a TV show a while ago because an actor who played one of the characters reminded me of one of my enemies. And I couldn't look at his face. Well, you see, this is what I mean. I got to go on a fun day trip this week. Go on. Yesterday, I got to go to Paul McCartney's private studio in Sussex, which is in an old windmill. It's basically where he goes to do all his kind of sketches of musical ideas. Wow. It was a fascinating place. What was the context in which you were going? For, for my American Beatles show. Oh, wow. I, I didn't take any photos while I was inside because, uh, you know, it's his, uh, it's his private studio. But I can tell you, if you like, what the reading material was in his toilet. Is that interesting to you? Yep. There was a, a Gary Larson Far Side cartoon book, mm -hmm. a few art books, mm -hmm. and there was another joke book called Isn't Progress Wonderful? The First Book of Eco Humor. Wow. There's my 2022 Christmas present. Yeah. Sounds like a great day trip. I don't want to brag, but I swam in four degrees this week. Oh, is, is, uh, is that a record for you? That's an equal UK all-comers record for me. How long did you manage? 10, 11. Minutes? Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking seconds if I hear that temperature. Did you turn blue? No. Well, we should, we should say what this episode is because it's slightly different to usual. Now for something completely different. I think it's for you to say... Yes, I'm delighted to say that this week's episode is a conversation with my insanely talented and accomplished friend, John Ronson, 
one of our finest writers and broadcasters. And he has a new podcast series called Things Fell Apart, Strange Tales from the Culture Wars, which is brilliant. And and I love John's work. He's told stories about everything from extremists to psychopaths to public shaming on social media. And even though he's often writing about some dark or difficult aspects of human behaviour, he does so with such empathy and humour. And another thing I really love is that his books and his podcasts, they present you with clear themes and often leave you asking yourself quite challenging questions, but you don't feel like he's writing with an agenda. And that is true of this series too. It's it's great, isn't it? We didn't actually talk about this with him, or was, and it's a really great conversation. He has got an incredibly compelling storytelling manner. It's, I think, something about his voice and his sort of warmth. I could listen to him all day. Something about he's got a very kindly voice. Years ago, I used to read my ex-girlfriend his Saturday column aloud in a John Ronson voice, which I won't attempt now because I don't think my impersonation... Well, I haven't got anything in. Fr- I haven't got anything to read in front of me. I go, I'll, I'll read you the front of Grazia magazine, which okay. is in here. Um, Kate's new pressure. What now for the palace's poster girl? Meet Tinks, the dating guru for the TikTok age. That's very good, you know. I don't have a big repertoire of impersonations. I think it's just John and Paul. I think McCartney. you should send it to John and see what he thinks. I've known John for a long time, and I think that that might have an impact on our friendship. He's got this thing at the end of it where he says, things fall apart with me, John Ronson, as if he's surprised that it's him. It's sort of quite, it's incredibly disarming and charming. Yeah, he's good. So what's your reason to be cheerful then? Well, coach Jeff, last week we decided that I'd had to take up a hobby and I said I wanted it to be, at least in the first instance, cooking. And I did cook an aubergine curry. And you sent me a photo of it. It wasn't that flattering, the photo, but the, it, it may sound like a sort of small step for most people, but it's a giant leap for me. And I'm now moving on to the pepper and something risotto. What did you learn from the experience? I think I, what I learned was that I find it quite difficult not to work. And I think the way I approach exercise, as you can tell, is in a sort of slightly workish manner. But I kind of forced myself to do this cooking. And it was quite good as in it sort of distracts, you know, it's quite, you have to sort of concentrate a little bit, or at least if you're me, you have to concentrate a bit. It's, it's mindfulness. It's keeping your brain busy enough that you don't let it spiral or, or worry yeah. or get anxious about things like I do. But it's not so all-consuming that it then becomes uh, stressful in its own right. And I also knew, if I'm, on, if I'm completely honest, clearly the priority was making it for Justine and so on, but I also knew it was quite important, given that I'd set myself the challenge a week earlier, that I came with something to say rather than sort of empty-plated. The minute I'd made it, I was like, I started being, I was like, wait till I tell Jeff this. Well, I'll be badgering you if I don't see a photograph of this risotto by midnight on. on Sunday. I also want you to work on your food photography skills. I know what didn't, it wasn't flattering. I was trying to decide between it and the chickpea curry, but then I just don't love chickpeas. I'm not being anti the chickpea community. I just, I just sort of felt... <laughs> I felt like I felt like the risotto was sort of path of least lesser resistance. Oh, you don't want to get on the wrong side of the chickpea community. You I mean, talk about don't. culture wars. Definitely. Uh, right. What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is is also a uh, 
throwback to last week's episode. Yeah. Which is we were talking about NFTs, and then we had to make the video to promote the episode on social media. So I spent some time on Monday morning photoshopping your face onto famous works of art. And you texted one saying that you really had a crush on me. As, as, as the girl with a pearl earring. Ed, you're very attractive. I mean, it's, it's stirring feelings in me that we're, we're either like buried deep and dormant or it's, it's a whole new thing. But I, I would consider dressing like that. What would it mean I would have to wear? Pearl earring. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. All right, let's say hello to our guest. His uh, podcast series, Things Fell Apart, came out on BBC Sounds a couple of months ago. You can now hear it everywhere. He's also coming to the UK to do a bunch of Things Fell Apart live shows. It is John Ronson. Hello. Jeff, it's such a delight to see you and, and a delight to meet you, Ed. Very, very good to have you on, John. And you and Jeff go way back, yes? Oh, yeah. Je- Jeff was the godfather to my son, Joel. Did we, we, we offic- I think I just kind of assumed that if we died, you'd somehow grab him and raise him. It makes it sound like I would be there at the point of you dying and I would sort of grab him from the wreckage in some way. <laughs> I mean, it would have been nice if, if that was the situation. <laughs> if I was the last face you saw. Yeah, so that's how well me and Jeff go back. But Jeff, you, your original meeting with John was, you were telling me earlier. Yes, so, so I, I started off at a radio station in South Manchester answering the phones when I was a young lad and John was the cool late night DJ. He was kind of 50% John Peel and then the other 50% it was conspiracy theorists and people who'd <laughs> spotted UFOs and John's ruminations on life. I mean, those years were were really wonderful. The late night presenters were me, Craig Cash, Caroline Hearn, and Terry Christian. Um, we all got fired one day. The program controller took us into his office and fired us one by one. And I'll never forget, as he was firing me, he was considerately rubbing my back as if to tell me it was all going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what, John, what, before we get into the substance of this series which is very thought-provoking what motivated you to do it i was watching friends fall apart on social media um in all sorts of culture wars and in in a way what they were fighting the battle they were fighting didn't feel as significant to me as the intensity with which they were fighting it they were fighting a culture war battle with an intensity which meant that their personal life was falling apart. They were losing their their families, their reputations. And I thought this was a very important thing to to chronicle, but I didn't want to make a show about the culture wars that would become a part of the culture wars because I'm very conflict-averse and I I just don't like adversarial journalism as being like a default. And also I thought, well, if you take conflict out of it, then what will what will be there instead? And it turned out that what's there instead is these eight really beautiful, strange human stories which twist and turn. Just these moments in the scream of the 50-year culture war to be able to like hone in on these tiny moments and just tell an, an incredible human story. So that's what I spent the year doing. And and even with that intention to avoid conflict, how much nervousness did you feel about getting into this? Uh, you know, honestly, I, I 
I'm, I get nervous about like many things, but I, I wasn't nervous about this show, to be honest. I, I felt that we had told such gentle human stories and whatever side of the ideological spectrum you're on, I think everybody appreciates human stories. And I thought I'd told them in in such a balanced, non-aggressive, curious, empathetic way, there wouldn't be any pushback. When So You've Been Publicly Shamed came out, there was some pushback. And so I'd had some experience about telling the story in a way that would have people yell at me. So I had that experience too. Um, by and large, like 95% of the time, that, that is what happened with Things Fell Apart. It got only praise from people across the spectrum. So I wasn't nervous, and it turned out that I didn't really have a reason to be nervous. Tell us the intent. In telling it through a series of eight stories which illuminate the culture wars uh, and and how they started, very, very human stories, what was your intent, do you think, for the listener? Well, before I set out, my intent was only to just was to tell human stories. I, I felt it's much easier to be curious and empathetic when you're telling human stories and when you take ideology out of the equation. I think it's really important sometimes to look at things in a humanistic and not an ideological way, particularly nowadays when there's more activist journalism than there's ever been. And so my kind of journalism sort of quieter, more more human, more twisty-turny, is, I guess, less popular and fashionable. So just doing that kind of storytelling was an intent in itself. But, of course, things, things emerge, really interesting themes emerge as you start to make it. And by the end, I had lots of intents. One of them is, I think, what's known in psychology as horseshoe theory, which basically means the bad tactics that the evangelical right do in the 1970s, you can pretty much rest assured that us on the left are doing it today. What's an example of that? So in episode two of Things Fell Apart, I look at, in 1974, the war over diversity of thought in school textbooks. And one of the authors that was being banned was an author called uh, Dick Gregory. And he was a comedian. He was a kind of avant-garde club comedian in the 60s, very similar to Bill Hicks. Um, he was black. Uh, and his he wrote a memoir that he titled with the N word, but he but it was the entire word. Now that was of such you know rage to the Christian right in the seventies that he was on a banned list of books. Cut to a couple of years ago at a college in the Pacific Northwest, uh, a, a, a black student asked the, the her dean to have more books by black authors. So she handed the student the autobiography of Malcolm X and Dick Gregory's memoir and the young student... Her personal was, copy of it, we should say. Her personal, her personal copy. Yeah. And the young student was so offended by the title of the book that there was a, a Twitter campaign to get the dean fired and there was a sit-in and in the end the dean ended up resigning. So there's a perfect example of horseshoe theory. In the 70s, it's the Christian right who think that Dick Gregory's book needs to be needs to be stopped and today it's the left. Maybe it's worth pinning down the definition of the culture wars. I mean, you cover a lot of ground. The Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which I think is one of the most chilling episodes because that is about this theory that in a 
basement of a pizza restaurant in Washington. People will probably have heard of this. Uh, there was a sort of child abuse ring coordinated by Hillary Clinton and uh, and others. I mean, of course, a completely insane conspiracy theory. There wasn't even a basement. The restaurant had no basement. There wasn't even a basement. But it kind of covers that abortion rights arguments. It, it's a lot focused on America, not only on America. Then I think you say at the end that describe it as one war mutating, forever echoing, repeating itself. What? Just talk to us about how you define these culture wars. Sure. Um, you know, the best definition I, I saw was it's a battle for dominance over conflicting values. It tends to be about pretty much everything that people yell about on social media, with the exception of economics, actually. Economics tends not to come into the culture wars quite as much. So it's about values. It's about a battle of dominance for conflicting values. And what I look at in the show is that is the modern-day culture wars really only started in the early 1970s because for 50 years, the evangelical right in America were separatists. They pretty much just separated themselves from mainstream society consumed their own media, went to their own churches. And it was only in the late 60s, early 1970s, that the evangelical right became politicised. And that's really when the modern culture wars began. Can I just ask you one follow-up on that, though? Because I was thinking this as as I was listening to the series. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole argument about desegregation in America... Mm. Okay, it wasn't... Maybe it wasn't described as the culture wars, but I mean... Would it not be recognised as part as part of that whole argument about society and rights and equality and so on? Oh, sure. I I think it was I think it was busing and diversity of thought in school textbooks, which is what began the modern culture wars. So so I I, I agree with you. The reason why I didn't go into busing much well at all in the series was because I felt that the school textbook wars. Just another example of the same thing. It was the idea of having diversity in hitherto all-white textbooks, which were full of things like the Dick and Jane stories, white families where nothing bad ever happened. So what happened all at once in the late 60s, early 70s was busing and also a sort of literary form of busing in a way, which was making the school textbooks more diverse. And it was the combination of those two things after 50 years the, the evangelical right obviously sat through the 50s because things were going kind of how they wanted in the 50s. Everybody was living a conformist life. There was housewife culture. It was all for the public good. Then they sat out most of the 60s with the exception of burning some Beatles records and stuff. They basically sat out the 60s. What got them motivated was, was busing and school textbooks. Do you, do you think in a way there's an argument to say it's it's not about the ideological s- struggles, but it's about the, the speed or at the temperature at which they happen? Well, that um, is certainly the case today. And because we allowed, well, we didn't allow, we had no choice because libertarians created the internet and we've been living ever since in a, in a world created by libertarians where unencumbered free speech is the only way. And the algorithms obviously are forcing people further and further down rabbit holes. As much as I like individual libertarian friends, I don't think it's a great idea for us to be living in a system that was created by libertarians. Um, So that's what episode five of Things Fell Apart looks at, is how the rules of the internet were created by 
free speech, utopian, engineering, libertarians. Something I wanted to ask you about, and I've been thinking about it a lot since I first heard the series, is condescension. I think in that very first episode where you're telling the story of the clash between the evangelicals who become politicised about abortion and income, the people that I would think of myself as ideologically allied with, the liberals, the East Coast feminists. And there's this feeling, though, that those evangelicals are are being condescended to and, and treated like they're intellectually inferior. And on one hand, I get uncomfortable thinking about how it makes them feel as human beings. But then those pro-choice campaigners are just people passionately fighting for progress and women's rights. And I wondered where you got to on that. And the idea that this condescension perhaps comes back to haunt us with those people who've been condescended to then voting for Trump. Well, in that particular case, the, the, the very earliest clashes in the abortion battle, uh, what was interesting is that both sides felt that it was extraordinary that the other sides were muscling in on their, on their issue. So both sides felt exactly the same thing about the other. So the feminists you know, obviously felt like a bunch of Christian evangelicals have got absolutely no right to talk about abortion. And the Christian right felt exactly the same thing. But what about that sort of specific thing of people being being treated like they're idiots? Yes, clearly. I mean, we're watching it unfold with our own eyes all the time. It just, it doesn't work, right? But yeah, if you're concerned about our terrible polarisation and the never-ending culture war that, you know, as Ed said, you know, I say at the end of the show, um, is constantly mutating. There's that Mark Twain line, the history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And that's what you see with the culture wars. You know, in the 80s, it may have been a satanic panic, but it's the same war being fought over and over again, and it's exhausting. And I think people are desperate for connection. Um, one episode, episode three of my show is a, is, a, is a story about connection. It's about a gay pastor with AIDS, Steve Peters, uh, going on to Tammy Faye Baker's afternoon Christian evangelist chat show and doing this incredible interview that, that rippled through the decades. And when I told that story, I had so many messages from people saying that they were like crying while listening, while driving up the motorway and so on. So the fact is there's a real appetite. I think people are battle weary and there's an appetite for for life becoming a little bit more peaceful. I was watching, uh, I I think probably the best cultural artefact of my lifetime uh, was Cabaret. And uh, I was watching Cabaret again yesterday while convalescing with my broken arm. And there's that moment, if you could see her through my eyes, that, and, and he's dating a gorilla, but the joke is that uh, she's Jewish. If you could see her through my eyes, she wouldn't look Jewish at all. And I always thought that that song is a song about the futility of satire. Like, there they are in the Kit Clack Club, being all happy with themselves and satirical, and yet the Nazis are taking over, and they're all going to end up in the concentration camps, and their little satirical numbers didn't help them at all. <laughs> and maybe that's a way to look at condescension too. The, uh, sure, it gives you a dopamine rush, when you're condescending towards somebody, but it doesn't do any good. You mentioned the episode about Tammy Faye Baker, um, TV evangelist, who did this rather extraordinary 
by the standards of the time, interview with Steve Peters, who had AIDS. Just say a bit more about what we should learn from it, because I think it's quite core to your. Mm. I think it's. I think it's. There's a. There's a line here from this to your. You've been publicly shamed. Series. It's the empathy and curiosity and patience as well, because I think one of the worst things about social media is is how impatient everybody is to just destroy somebody, and then two days later we find out that the information was all wrong. Uh, I, I think those are more, for me anyway, I can really only talk about myself as a storyteller. For me, those are much better ways of telling stories than instant judgment. When I found myself telling a story about some, like somebody who everybody thought was bad, who turned out to really be bad, and they did really bad things, there's always a slight, and I've done one or two of those stories, I always end up feeling slightly disappointing. I didn't surprise anyone. I didn't pull the rug out from anybody's feet. I didn't, I didn't shine a light and find some unexpected humanity. It was just a bad person being bad. So I'm just, I'm looking for curiosity and patience. And the thing about the Tammy Faye, Steve Peters story is that they had a human, curious, patient, empathetic conversation that moved people so much at the time. It was a, it was a pebble thrown in a pond. Um, God, I mean, one of the saddest moments, I think about this a lot, is so Steve had, had AIDS and after the show, somebody phoned Tammy Studio and said that her son had AIDS and she always thought that he was going to go to hell when he died. But after listening to the interview with, with Tammy and Steve, she now knew that her son was going to go to heaven when he died. And then cut to like decades later, and I'm getting messages saying that telling Tammy and Steve's story, people were like having to stop their car because they were crying so hard while listening. And I think what this shows is that we're, you know, we are battle weary and we're ready for connection. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I I think it's hard to lump all of this. There are lots of different things going on here. Instances of of conflict, I think, is maybe the maybe way to put it. But, But to the extent that this conflict is about previously oppressed people standing up for their rights, gay rights, rights for women, rights for black people in the US. You need understanding, but not inertia. And in a way, I suppose the question is, those people who stand up for their rights, sometimes angrily and justifiably, I'm basically on your side about you've got to understand a lot more um, the different people's points of view and all of that. But it's not; it can't be a case for the status quo, is what I'm saying. I suppose. Oh yeah, no. I I mean, look, we, this, this that question 
could could keep us talking for hours and hours and hours. Um, but no, of course, I agree with you. If you're you, when I started writing, so you've been publicly shamed, which is a book that's critical of social media shaming. One of the very first things you think about is that. One of the great things about social media is that it gives a voice to voiceless people, meaning both marginalised communities, but also maybe people who are so socially anxious in real life that they don't have a voice in real life, but they have a voice on social media. So if you're then criticising the the way that social media is being used as a weapon, then are you also inherently criticising the only weapon that marginalised people have? So... And of course, you don't want to do that. So you have to draw the distinction. So what I'm, so yes, I'm agreeing with you. But I also think that needs to be at the forefront of any kind of chronicling of these subjects. And you need to bear it in mind and not make the mistake. Not you need to draw the distinctions. So, and I think, I think my book and and things fell apart draws those distinctions. Can I turn it around by asking you a question, Ed? Because we're talking because quite a lot in this series. We're talking about methods. I'm talking about methods. And one of the things I come up against quite a lot is the idea of the adversarial system. Uh, Now, you, obviously, um, were a vast part of the adversarial system. So my honest question is, because, you know, as 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 somebody who really hates conflict, I'm just naturally... Um, suspicious of the adversarial system, whether it's journalism, whether it's politics, whether it's the courtroom. Um, so you lived right at the heart of the adversarial system. Are you? Are you? Are you for it? I think there's lots of aspects to the adversarial system that are rubbish and awful. Prime Minister's questions, obviously, being uh, one of them. I think to the extent that it's an argument about ideology, though, and about how the country is run i think it's inevitable and necessary and therefore i mean maybe it's about the way we practice disagreement but i mean it's really 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 hard to to this because it's very easy to say the right thing and not necessarily do the right thing can you be for big change without conflict no no and therefore is there a specific form of the conflict which is which is less divisive. Here's my dilemma, which is that I'm I'm somebody who thinks society needs big change, but I'm also inherently, as Jeff will testify, non-conflictual. I don't like conflict, and therefore. But the question I wrestled with a lot as leader, and I suppose I still wrestle with, is the people who don't want change are going to fight against the change. Roosevelt, when he did the New Deal, he had a lot of conflict, but it was good he did the New Deal. When Attlee did his things in 1945 and Bevan created the NHS, it was pretty conflictual, but you needed the conflict. What would you say to the Atlee Roosevelt question? Well, I mean, obviously what you're saying, there's countless examples in Things Fell Apart about necessary conflict. I mean, when you go back to really the very first modern culture war, which was diversity of thought in school textbooks, clearly you can't think, well... Our children should only be allowed to be taught stuff coming up from white conservatives. So clearly, change needs to happen, and you see that over and over again in the show with gay marriage and and with abortion rights, and over and over again. So it's not that it's not necessary conflict. I think that I'm that I'm looking at. It's when the conflict becomes dysfunctional, 
when the conflict becomes not only counterproductive, but kind of ruinous to people's mental health and so on. So that was my starting point. It wasn't, it wasn't whether we should have a society of conflict, but it was like what's happened that we've got to this place of such dysfunctional conflict. But also, is there a way of getting through that conflict, which would be quicker and more productive if the temperature of the of it was different? Yes, and that has happened. You know, in, in you know, we're, I think we're living in a pretty exceptional time of conflict right now. Part, partly because of the internet, I guess, probably mainly because of the internet. So yeah, we're living in exceptionally polarized times. Well, I was actually going to just about ask you about the internet and its role in this because. A lot of your stories are deliberately from the pre-internet era, you know, and I think it is quite important this. It doesn't just say, oh, the internet's come along and people take lumps out of each other. You've got this interesting thinking about the architecture of the internet, no gatekeepers, free speech above all. There's obviously something very, very tricky to wrestle with here because this freeing up of information is great in many senses and deeply problematic in some other senses. Well, it was such a fascinating moment that we found that took place in the late 80s at Stanford University. We found the first person ever to be publicly shamed because of something that they did on the internet. Uh, And it was actually on a precursor to the internet, Usenet. And it was a joke. He ran a joke page, joke a day. And one day, which happened to be the anniversary of Kristallnacht, which he didn't realise... The joke of the day was a joke that veered into anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Scottishness. Basically, the joke is is about how a Scotsman and a Jew are having dinner and neither of them want to pay, and blah, 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 blah. So it's about, and it is definitely an anti-Semitic joke. It's such a Saturday night in the 1970s joke that when I heard it, I'm like, yeah. you know, it wasn't like, oh my God, you know, that's the joke. So he puts it on the, he puts it on Usenet. Uh, to cut a long story short, at Stanford, at the very moment of the creation of the internet, this joke is being debated. What do we do about this joke? Do we ban it from the internet? Do we allow it to, to run unencumbered? So that was the argument. And Stanford at first banned the joke, but then all of these libertarians who were creating the internet, men like John McCarthy and so on, and I think and Peter Thiel was there at the same time. The founder of PayPal, very libertarian yeah. founder of PayPal. Yeah, and they were ferociously positioned to the banning of the joke because they were saying that machines must be allowed. These were like engineering utopians. Machines must be allowed to do what machines are capable of doing and humans can't intervene. So that was the argument in 1987. Do you back the joke or do you keep it up? Do you allow machines to flourish unencumbered or not? And the libertarians won, and that is the world that we've been living in ever since. And that's the world where fake news is proliferated and defensive language and, and all the terrible things about language that are happening now was, were decided in that moment at Stanford in the late 80s. Now, what they never did, and I don't have the answer, like I'm not going to, this isn't ending in a place where I come out looking amazing. Uh, there was never any discussion of a third way. So we either banned the joke or we just allowed machines to flourish. There was never any discussion of a third way. Had there been in the late 80s, maybe we'd be living in a, in a different world now. So, so square one with that then isn't necessarily the, the libertarians winning the argument. It's the nature 
of that argument in the first place then. Yeah, but also libertarians can be very argumentative and pedantic. Like when libertarians take over a school board or a town board, those meetings tend to last like 12 hours instead of like the... So, you know, so you would battle a childishly pedantic, argumentative, superior, self-righteous people. So you're bound to lose. Obviously, what the internet has then done to all of us is that we retreat into our corners, we become less curious, we become less empathetic. What's rewarded is instant judgment. That's the most rewarded thing on social media. And of course, you know, social science has shown over decades that there's a connection between morality and, and violence. You behave in a more violent way, the more you feel that you're in service to a moral cause. So all of those things have been playing out on the internet all the time. And then what happens is... As my friend Adam Curtis said to me one time, it's no coincidence that the internet is designed by engineers. What do engineers love more than anything else? Stability. So you're all going along, blah, blah, blah. We're all on social media. We're all agreeing with each other. We're all telling each other how amazing we are. That suddenly into this stable situation comes somebody with a different point of view. And the machine just ejects that different point of view to keep stability going. And so that's what's been happening. I think it's so interesting that it was engineers who created the rules of the internet, as well as creating the internet. Do you ever think it goes beyond the internet and it's sort of the birthing pains of the modern era? Because even mass media is in living memory, the proliferation of television and radio. And I was listening to that podcast, You're Wrong About. They did an episode on cancel culture. They said that it took about 100 years for society to adjust to the popularization of the printing press because people's behavior and the laws weren't equipped for it. And it, it took about a century for everything to catch up. It feels like maybe we're just living through the same period of adjustment. I, I think that's possible. I say, and so you've been publicly shamed that, you know, on the internet, we're like toddlers crawling towards a gun, meaning that we don't understand our own power. When we, when we pile in on somebody the impact on their mental health is, is far more devastating than we would imagine until it happens to us. So, yeah, I'd say there's definitely some, some truth. Adam Curtis, you mentioned Adam Curtis, and I read this interesting conversation that you did with him. He says that the real answer to why this is happening, I think he partly meant the culture wars, is because politics has failed. It's become this dead area, this desert surrounded by think tanks. Someone's got to get in there and regenerate it. The new politics is waiting to come and think it will happen. What do you think about what Adam said? To be completely honest, Adam has spent his life thinking about and caring a lot about politics. Um, and I, I haven't. You know, history has proven over many decades that Adam has told me things that turned out to be absolutely true. So that's probably the case here as well. But also there's a fact is I think there's a more nihilistic response too, though, which is the Sometimes I do think that there are just different personality types. People's brains just work in different ways. Uh, an activist who really enjoys conflict, I think, could never understand what it's like to be inside my brain where I'm so conflict averse. I'm trying to always find different ways. Sometimes we're being led by our own brains and there is the conservative brain and there is the progressive brain. And so maybe the reason why this is a never ending and never winnable war is that there's very different personality types walking this earth. 
But that's why your question about the adversarial nature of things like justice or politics is interesting, because then it means that those personality types or somebody who is able to operate in that sphere is is more likely to be in that sphere. Exactly. You get an unfair, you, there's an unfair advantage. It's like, it seems to me that, you know, screaming at somebody and then, you know, scrutinizing the person to see how well they respond to being screamed at is as an irrational way to judge what somebody is like as how well they do at Wordle. It's like it's so arbitrary. <laughs> I love Wordle. I've only just discovered Wordle. Honestly, I've been playing Wordle with my children. I, I, I mean, honestly, it's only to get me started on Wordle. Uh, right. Well, me too. I, I wish that people would judge that way. It's like it's not a level, it's not a level playing field. John, your um, podcast is mainly focused on the US, but not exclusively. How do you think about the UK in this uh, context? I mean, the US is in a different position for a range of reasons. And I think it's quite important not to overstate these culture wars in our context. But what mm. what's your perspective on this? Honestly, I think you two would be better people to answer that question than me. For, from my perspective in being in New York, I've been here for 10 years now, feels, just from where I'm sitting, that Britain and, and America are in pretty similar situations. Like us, our societies are, are fragmenting in, in relatively similar ways. We were talking about this a, a little earlier, and I think maybe some of the individual issues or some of the language is different, but you can't click on the Daily Mail's website or turn on GMTV without hearing the word woke used. Mm. I really hate that word, by the way. I wish people would say, there's a few phrases in all of this that I really can't stand. Cancel culture is one, because cancel culture is an umbrella term for so many wildly different set circumstances, from a private individual who's disproportionately punished for a minor transgression, which is what I was asking about, so you've been publicly shamed, through to public figures who maybe get more pushback than they used to, but they are public figures, so that's all different thing, politicians or columnists or whatever, through to politicians who've committed sexual assault. It's a, uh, and, and, it's, and so that term is used both confusingly and self-servingly. That show you said you're wrong about was saying that cancel culture didn't exist and it's just a moral panic. And so I find the phrase cancel culture really useless, problematic phrase that all it does is cloud everything even more. And I really don't like the word woke because the word woke comes from black culture and, and, and about being awake, about about becoming more more active. And now it's being used as a way to mock people who believe in things. It's the sort of modern day equivalent of using the phrase political correctness gone mad. Yeah. I think, or they're talking about the loony lefty councils in the sun in the 80s. But I think the reason I mention it is... It, we don't hear the phrase culture wars as much here, mm. but I think it's evident in all those things. Well, yeah, and there's certain culture wars that burn hotter in Britain than they do in America. I mean, just one interesting difference is that when the England football team took the knee last summer and the, Boris Johnson was equivocal about whether they should have be, been boo, uh, best equivocal about whether it was okay to boo them for it or not, it massively backfired on him. Mm, yeah. I don't mean to be like overly optimistic about this, but I think it's sort of interesting. 
And I actually think um, Gareth Southgate did an extraordinary job. He explained why, you know, it was... Yeah, what it means, what taking the me means. You could be proud, patriotic, and do this all together. And that it was actually an expression of your patriotism and all of that. You know, I, don't, I, think, you're, I think you're absolutely right about that because I've heard, you know, many times in America, people explaining patiently what taking the knee means and is meant to represent. And it's, and it's obviously very clear what it means and what it's meant to represent. And you're right, still, there's ferocious arguments about it in America, even though it's very clear what it means. So, yeah, so I think in that situation, I think I agree with you. I saw something positive happen in America quite recently, though. We like positive uh, on this podcast. Yeah, there was a um, another dog park incident that happened a few months after the famous Amy Cooper one. And on this occasion... In, 50, in case people don't know what that is. The Amy Cooper incident was, uh, there was a woman with her dog in the Ramble, which is the most protected area of Central Park. And she was letting her dog run around to this bird watcher who was black asked her to put the dog back on the leash and she wouldn't and so he started filming her and then at one point during the filming she says I'm going to phone the police and I'm going to tell them that an African-American is threatening me. Now in Central Park in particular what that immediately evokes is the image of Central Park Five who were falsely imprisoned for for rape in, in Central Park. And so that became a ferocious situation. But a few months later, there was another situation that was, you know, that had some of the same hallmarks. It was a dog park. It was an altercation between a black man and a white woman. And it was a fragmented video. But on this occasion, it was more ambiguous. And what I noticed that I found really positive was that some of the leading progressive voices uh, said about this second shaming you know, is it fair to judge somebody on a fragment of a video when we don't have the full picture? And that felt like, honestly, that felt like a change. Like, it, it wasn't progressives who used to say that. And now progressives are saying that. And that felt like a very positive change. Because all I've been saying the last seven years is, you know, have, have some patience, have some curiosity. You can't judge somebody by just a fragment of information. Everybody's got a lot of shit going on. There's always a bigger context. I understand why people wanted to, to try better the actual justice system, but there's a danger of throwing away the, the baby with the bathwater because in sentencing hearings, the people are allowed to talk about context and so on, yet context was considered a weakness on social media. We don't need to know. We know what that person's like. So all of those things, which were so, I felt, you know, damaging bad ways to look at our fellow humans. With this second dog park incident, it felt like things were changing. And and something I've told you before that I really enjoy about your work is I feel like unlike some of your contemporaries, you know, I think a lot of people think I'd like to write a piece about this or I'd like to make a programme about this. And they've got a bunch of holes that they want to fill with stories that then back up their thesis. And mm. I don't think that's how you approach storytelling. No, I do the opposite. And and so then given that's how you work, in the making of this series specifically in these episodes, was there anything that you came to think differently about? I mean, even even listening to it, I, I, I really wrangle with um, 
intention versus impact mm. and the the balance of that has seemed really off to me but just lis- listening to it i think i've sort of come round a little bit to to the understanding impact. the importance of impact more than i did before i heard it yeah that's interesting that one actually um was interesting to me when I when I asked Robin DiAngelo to who, who's the author of White Fragility, who's probably more responsible than anybody else in the Western world for moving the conversation from attention to impact. Like it doesn't matter what the person's intention was, all that matters is the impact that it has on on the victim, the quote unquote victim. So a really egregious example of that, you could argue, is when the professor handed Dick Gregory's memoir called the N-word to the student. And both Dick Gregory's intention and the dean's intention were of no consequence to the student. Um, all that mattered was the impact that, that seeing the word had on her. So that's an example where you think, okay, well, sure, you know, clearly the balance is off because Dick Gregory was this incredible figure who was so brilliant. And, and you know, you should try and get a dean fired for giving people his book. But I think I agree with you, Jeff. Like when I interviewed Robin D'Angelo, she was a lot more persuasive. And I found myself seeing it from her perspective more than I thought I would. Towards the end, John, give us some optimism. The best thing I can say is what happened as a result of episode three of Things Fell Apart, my Tammy Faye, Steve Peters. They get had, it had the most response of every episode in the series. It's a show about connection, about warring factions coming together, about people listening to each other and being curious and being empathetic. And that's the show that had the biggest and most positive impact, which makes me think that that's what, that's the future that people want. And and at a personal level, if I may ask this, how do you try and live this out? I mean, there'll be a lot of people who are sort of empathetic to finding the sort of people taking lumps out of each other on social media, quite upsetting. I would include myself in this. Um, what, what do you do to sort of cope slash, you know, more than cope? Right. So in battle terms, I, I, I always think, uh, wait a couple of days. Like when you hear of something terrible, some terrible incident where somebody deserves to just be ruined for it, wait a few days. Because history has shown that Twitter is the world's worst information swapping service. Uh, two days later, new information almost always comes along that puts the original story into, into a different context. So, so I try and be curious. I try and be patient. Are you on Twitter? Do you, do you follow Twitter m- much? I, I rarely tweet. I'm tweeting at the moment because of things fell apart. And I'm yeah. using Twitter just as a way to tell people how to listen to the show and so on. I, I almost never tweet in any other capacity anymore, uh, mainly because I, I came to the conclusion, not only is it upsetting and stressful, but also it's people have different modes of discourse. Some people are brilliant tweeters. I, I marvel at the skill that some people tweet with, but my mode of discourse is long form narrative nonfiction. Why express yourself in this other way if, if it's not what you're best at? I tweeted the other day, I broke my arm and I tweeted something the other day. I, I, I took a break from not tweeting anything personal. I just tweeted some little funny thing about my broken arm and how they thought I was a full risk and they put this thing around my wrist and it made me feel like an old man and, you know, I'm not a full risk just because I fell over, you know, blah, blah. 
anyway, I, I saw a bunch of responses, which was like, you know, well, my husband died and I wish somebody had put a thing around his arm. And so I just thought like, hey, I really sympathize with this woman. I mean, of course, but B, it's like, that's how things go on Twitter all the time, right? So why bother? Well, thanks so much for spending the time with us. If you haven't already heard the series, it's everywhere now. It's extraordinary, as John's work tends to be. And if you have heard it, go and see John talk about the show and and tell stories, both from the show and ones that didn't make it into the series, on stage. Did you say end of March, beginning of April, John? End of March. It's a really short talk. Uh, So short, I could probably send you the towns. London, Bristol, Sheffield... Nottingham and Cardiff. So if you're in any of those cities or go close to them, please come to Things Fell Apart live show. Well, thank you for being so brave doing this with a broken arm. Uh, I'm just... Uh, the adeptness with which you put on your headphones, just just a week on from breaking your arm, it makes me think that maybe you could survive post-apocalypse after all. Maybe you don't... Do, you know what I can't do? Um, floss. Because you really need two arms to floss. But I've got to be honest, that doesn't feel like any great loss. <laughs> Thanks, John. And uh, we hope you can get back to flossing soon. Thanks, you guys. That was, so much, that was such a lot of fun and so interesting to talk to you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, as ever, we'd love to hear from you. It was a really interesting conversation with John and not something that can be resolved and wrapped up in the space of 45 minutes. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You can send us an email through the website, uh, which is cheerfulpodcast.com. We received this from Emmeline Farnhill, who says, and this was about our NFT episode. Emmeline says, Dear Reasons to Be Cheerful, I appreciate you attempted to make it as balanced as possible, but there was not nearly enough criticism of the concept in the episode. I would be against NFTs, even if they were somehow better for the environment than the alternative. Almost every case for them can already be done by existing technologies and more efficiently. Uh, Emmeline then recommends some YouTube videos, which we haven't had time to check out so I'm loathe to pass that on without having already seen them ourselves because you know some stuff on YouTube is a little odd but it's probably worth digging into more. So this one comes from Gabrielle Shamash and I'm really excited about this. Uh, hello podcast listener and British comedy politics fan from New Jersey here. I was listening to a recent episode where it was mentioned that no one had analysed the data about pond temperature. Recently took data science at Brown University. I'm a history and development studies student. So I figured I could try. I mean, it's incredibly nice of her. Um, she's done this chart. Um, now, I think it's worth sort of digging into the chart. I think it indicates, well, I mean, it's a pretty close relationship in truth. There's something interesting happens in May, June and July which is that the pond temperature seems to be significantly above the outside air temperature. Most of the rest of the time, it tracks it pretty closely. It seems to stay above it in September, October, November, which means it, it, it's this thing about it being a sort of slightly lagging indicator, I think. Well, it warms up over the summer. That's why when you swim in the sea, yeah. it's always warmer at the end of the summer. But there's probably something about the long days as well, the daylight hours. Ah, interesting. It's without even seeing the chart. Interesting. Thank you so much to Gabrielle. We really appreciate you doing your data homework. We do, really. If you've got thoughts, please, we love to hear from you. Ideas for future episodes. We're horizon scanning, aren't we, Jeff, for Always. future episodes? Please let us know. We're all ears. 
Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. And it's lovely and balmy here in the outro. I mean, the air temperature. Unlike the pond temperatures. So, you know how you've suppressed that picture of me in my swimming gear? Yes. Do you want me to release it? No, don't you think that the sort of Matt Hancock experience does rather suggest that I was right? <laughs> Matt Hancock, who went into the serpentine, he's more kind of gung-ho than me, clearly he didn't mind about the pictures. But... Okay, so my uh, my potential for blackmail and extortion has just risen then. Yeah, I think just so. Just increased. Uh, should we thank John? Yeah, just really great to talk to John, and I think I'll go and see one of his shows as well. Yeah, well, thank you to him. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. Thank you to Emma. And Joe Kenyon from Goldfish has been providing all the research and backup for us uh, in this interregnum. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our iDents Ed Seed composer music, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Chef. He's been Jeff TV. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>